figured it out already. Today is Resurrection Sunday. The day that we celebrate in a special way the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. And I know every Sunday is a celebration of sorts, the resurrection, but this Sunday is one that we set aside for special emphasis. You would think with all of this emphasis and all of this talk about the resurrection that it would be important, wouldn't you? And indeed, it is important. It's not just important. It is central. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the truth that draws all Christians together, not just on this day, but throughout history. The resurrection of Christ from the grave is the central truth, the central event in all Christianity. This is the foundation of our faith. It is the very turning point of all history. Without the reality of the resurrection, as was read earlier this morning, we are of all people to be pitied. We are the most pitiable of all people in the world. Why? Because we have great hopes, but no true hope. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. Without the resurrection, everything falls apart and life has no purpose. But with the resurrection, our faith and our doctrine hold together eternally. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the message of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection is of first importance. Of first importance. That is, this is foundational to our Christian faith. So, our great and glorious task this morning on this Resurrection Sunday is to focus our attention on our great risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. It is our joyful purpose today to look at Him, to exalt Him, to celebrate Him, and to let our minds contemplate His greatness. And one of the best places in all of Scripture to find a clear and definitive emphasis on the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ above all things is the book of Hebrews. So I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and just the first four verses today because that gives us more than enough to chew on this afternoon in exalting Christ above all else. This is one of those passage that, passages that is all about simply seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. In fact, these four verses give us no practical instruction, quote unquote, no commands at all. But you know, sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it is okay to come to a passage and not see a command of do these five things today. Because the ultimate purpose is that we would come and see who God is. And in truth, if we see the Jesus that this passage is highlighting for us today, it will change our lives. 
And I will give you some points of application at the end of the message today. But the main point of our time together is simply that we would see a glimpse of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ as he is now and as he will ever be. And our goal is that we would savor him, that we would rest in him, that we would enjoy him today. We want to take time, if I can say it this way, to brag on Jesus. I think it's okay for us to do that because of who he is and what he has done. The book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is better than anything this world can offer. Jesus is greater than any other Savior that the world might present to us. And all of this hinges on His resurrection from the grave. All religions have their supposed Savior. Our Savior is better because He's risen from the dead. The world offers us so many sources of joy and hope. Jesus is better because He is the only source of true joy and hope. He died for us. How many saviors can say that? How many religions can say that? He took on Himself the punishment for sin that we deserved. And what's more, He rose from the grave. And just so that we're not making any mistakes this morning in in our understanding, understand this, when I say He rose from the grave, I am saying in no uncertain terms that He literally rose from the grave. This is not a spiritual resurrection. This is not, oh, but His Spirit lives on in the history books and in the... No, He got up out of the tomb. We saw this in John chapter 20 this morning. He actually walked around on this earth. His disciples saw him, and not just his disciples, but hundreds of others. And by his resurrection, he not only secured his own victory over sin in the grave, but he secured eternal salvation and peace with God for all who put their trust and hope in him. That changes everything. So we need to think about Jesus today. We need to remember who He is and what He has done. And what this passage describes for us is not just who Jesus is today, but this is who He has always been, even in eternity past. And our goal is, as I said, to savor Him, to let our hearts be drawn to love and worship Him this morning. So with that in mind, would you look at Hebrews chapter 1 and follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right from the beginning, in verses 1 and 2, this passage speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in a big way. Long ago, it says that many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, verse 2, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. His Son, the eternal Son of God, that is Jesus, who is God, who is equal with God the Father in His nature, in His essence, and in His person, and His, his purpose. So these first two verses set Jesus up, not just as the focus of our text, but as the focus of all Scripture. It puts Jesus in contrast to the entire system of Old Testament revelation through the prophets. And it exalts Jesus as superior over everything that has occurred in history to this point. Right off the bat, we see that Jesus is the superior revelation of God to men. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets as intermediaries between God and men. But men nonetheless, mere men. And the messages that the prophets gave to the people of God were temporal messages. They were partial. They were incomplete. They didn't have the whole picture. Not at any one time, but they were pointing to something greater. They were pointing to the future. They were pointing to an ultimate fulfillment. And when we come to the New Testament, we find out that the fulfillment of all of that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That in Him, we receive a full and complete revelation of God and a full and complete revelation of the salvation God is giving to His people. And so here, when we look at these first two verses, we learn all Scripture is meant to point to Christ. The Old Testament, if you will, announces that He is coming. The Gospels in the New Testament proclaim He is here. The book of Acts and the epistles explain He is in charge and He is on the move. And then the book of Revelation completes the story by telling us He is coming again. That's the story of Scripture. The, re the revelation of God through Jesus Christ then is complete and final. When we have Christ, we don't need to find further revelation of God because we have everything we need in Him. And so what this world needs is not more more revelation or further details about the things we don't know, what this world needs is to see Jesus, to know Him. And today, as we look at these four verses, we're going to look at seven truths about the superiority or the greatness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, how are you going to get seven points? out of four verses. Just watch. 
seven truths about the greatness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, these four verses show us who this Jesus really is, why he is so great, and why it really matters. We're going to see how Jesus is better than anything else. And we are, Lord willing, going to draw near to him and stand in wonder at his greatness. So, first of all, the first thing we notice about the greatness of Christ is in the middle of verse 2, and it is that Jesus is superior because of his inherent authority. His inherent authority. Middle of verse 2 refers to Jesus as the one whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now remember the context here. This is talking about uh, God the Father in verse 1, who is appointing his son, Jesus Christ, as the heir of all things. In other words, Jesus Christ is the recipient or is the, the executor, if you will, the heir of all that God possesses. Not only that, he is the only son, therefore he is the only heir. This is an exclusive message, and it all belongs to him. He has no rival. Now, when we talk about an inheritance in human terms, I think we all have a pretty good idea of what we're talking about, right? Implied in an inheritance on purely human terms is what? A death, the death of an individual. But in this case, we're talking about God who can't die. So this conversation goes beyond simply human ideas. This has to do with more than just a merely human inheritance. This has to do with divine authority. And it is an eternal authority. One of the things that helps us understand how God the Son relates to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and how that Trinity doctrine works is by considering the fact that it is eternal and it reaches into eternity past. So this is an eternal authority that belongs to the Son. Everything belongs to Him. And what, what is part of everything? The world? Everything that has ever existed, everything that ever will exist, it all belongs to Him. Every part of creation, whether it is physical or otherwise, past, present, future, it all belongs to Him. And it is under His control. Now, notice here in the middle of verse 2, the tense of this phrase. It is past tense, whom he appointed the heir of all things. As I've said, this is an eternal truth, which means it has already happened, which means Jesus is and has been and always will be the one who is in charge of all things. And not only that, there is coming a day when he will return again and he will take possession of all things physically. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 describe what that day will be like when the Apostle Paul explains, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that for you will be a situation where either you are bowing before Him and confessing Him as your Savior from sin, or as your righteous judge for sin. And my plea to you today is that by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your knee can bow and your tongue can confess that He is your Lord and Savior and you can enter into His fellowship and be with Him forever because He was crucified and has risen again from the grave. In Psalm 2, we have a recorded conversation between the Father and the Son. And in verses 7 and 8, we read this, that the Father says to the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That is a declaration of the inheritance, of the inherent authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 deals with it as well, telling us that all things belong to Him and are under His authority. This is an authority that is unlike any other earthly authority. The leaders of this world have their authority, but it's a limited authority because they have limited kingdoms. And we may place our trust in those earthly leaders to a certain degree, but never fully and finally. Because there is no leader on earth, past, present, or future, who compares with Christ. His authority comes from God the Father Himself. And His realm is all creation. Every other world leader is under His authority. Every aspect of life as we know it, is under His authority, and it is all answerable to Him. So this one phrase tells us, Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. He is the superior one because of His inherent, eternal, divine authority. The next phrase takes this one step further. Not only is Jesus superior because of His inherent authority, but the end of verse 2 tells us He is superior because of His creative power. His creative power. Look at the text, the end of verse 2. It says, Through whom also He, that is God, created the world. The authority of Jesus comes not only from His position as the Son of God, but also from His work as the Creator of all things. And we understand that the Creator is the owner, right? The Creator is the owner. He gets to make the rules. He gets to set the agenda. He gets to set the direction. 
He is the Creator. In John chapter 1, verse 3, we learn of Jesus, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You didn't get it the first time? He says it a second time right there. Everything was made. If it exists, Jesus did it. Likewise, the Apostle Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, to teach that there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's the oneness of the Father and the Son. All things have existed and continue to exist by His power. And again, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, by Him, that is, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And though we don't see the name of Jesus mentioned specifically, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 at the creation account, as God reveals Jesus in the New Testament, we find out it was He, it was this eternal Word of God, the Son of God, who was there creating the world. But I think it's important for us to notice here that the word for world is not the word in the original language that refers to the physical planet, the ground on which we walk. That would be the word cosmos. This is a different word. It's the word ion or eon. And it has to do with more than just the earth that we walk on. It has to do with the times and the epics and the history of everything that has existed. The creative power of Jesus Christ goes beyond simply the physical world. He created time and space. He has written the timeline of history. He has created the seasons. A great example of this is to look at Psalm 139. I would commend that to you on your own time this afternoon. In Psalm 139, the psalmist confesses not only that God is powerful over all creation, but that God is actually there ordering His steps through every moment of His life. This is the sovereign power of the creating God. God is not only fully aware of and in control of the physical world, but also of the details of history. We read it this way in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And the idea there is that He is ordering every moment of human history. But then we come to the New Testament. And this authority and this power is attributed specifically to Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, we read of Christ, who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Every part of creation 
every moment of history, created and ordered by our Lord Jesus Christ, and it all revolves around Him. He created it, and it belongs to Him. And so everything that exists, exists for His purposes and His glory. And that includes all of us. That includes you and me. You were made by Jesus Christ. And you exist for His glory. Every aspect of the story of your life is under control. It's under His control. And He doesn't make mistakes. The fact that you are sitting here this morning is by His design. The fact that you are hearing this passage of Scripture this morning is by His design, for His purpose, that you would draw near to Him and know Him. The fact that you live where you live today and you do what you do and the fact that you face what you face in this life is all by His divine ordering. And it is under His good control. Even the painful things. God makes no mistakes. And if we must experience pain in this life, it's because He has something He wants to accomplish with it. And He is drawing us to Himself. So whatever you face in this life, there really isn't this option for us to wish we were living someone else's life, right? Sometimes we might want that. Sometimes we think, oh man, if I could just be that guy, if I could just have what that guy has, everything would be good. No, they have their problems too. But you are living the life that God in His good providence has uniquely designed for you. It may not always feel good, but I assure you it is good because everything that we're reading in this passage is true. And He has a good purpose for you. So the Lord Jesus Christ is superior far above all things because of His inherent authority and because of His creative power. And now thirdly, I want us to see in verse 3, that He is superior because of His radiant glory. His radiant glory. The text says that He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? He is the manifestation or the display of the glory of God Himself. He is the glory of God. This word radiance does not mean reflection. The moon is bright. Did you see the moon this morning, any of you? Were you up that early? No, I wasn't up there. You miss out. It was bright. There was a whole lot of reflection going on this morning. Big, bright moon, clouded by haze, which made it radiate even radiate reflect even further. The moon doesn't produce its own light. The moon reflects the light of the sun. That's not what we're talking about with Jesus. Jesus does not reflect the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God. The light comes from Him. 
Consider the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration when he pulls back the veil of his flesh and there's a brightness that is so great it knocks them to their faces on the ground. That is the glory of God. That is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of the light. He is the very glory of God himself. And that word glory has the idea of weight and brightness. It's something that we could call spectacular. In the Old Testament, glory is associated with the presence of God, as with the smoke at Mount Sinai or over the temple. Jesus is the reflect the, the, the manifestation, the display of the glory of God. In fact, we're told this even in the New Testament, John 1.14. The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.6, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has revealed his glory to us through Christ, by sending Christ into this world. And we see that glory now in a veiled way. The disciples saw it in a veiled way because he was a human being. We see it in a veiled way because we look into the scriptures. But there is coming a day when we will, with unveiled face, see that glory of Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. Now, closely related to that and sort of building on that point, not only is Jesus superior because of his radiant glory, but fourthly, he is superior because of his divine nature. That's where this glory comes from. So this is the explanation for it. Verse 3 continues by telling us that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of God's nature. That word nature has to do with the foundational essence of who he is. Whoever we are in our nature is who we truly are. And Jesus in his nature is the eternal God. His divine nature. That's where this radiant glory comes from. And when it talks about that imprint, the idea behind the word imprint is a stamp but not like what we use, right? This isn't, this isn't like a, a rubber stamp that you use an ink pad for and you soak up some of the ink and then you put a representation of it on the paper. No, this is the seal that a king would use in ancient times to seal a letter. He would put the wax on the paper and then he would use that signet ring and push it into the wax. Where was the stamp? On the paper. That's the symbol of the king's authority. That's the symbol of the king's proclamation. That's the glory of the king being represented to the people who receive the letter. In the same way, Jesus is not a similar form as God. He is not a look-alike. He's not a replica of God. He is God who has been made known to men. 
He is not only God manifest, but he is God in substance. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself says in John 12.45, whoever, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He's already gotten them to the point where they understand that Jesus came from God. Now he's saying, no, I am God. If you have seen me, you have seen the God who sent me. And he goes on in chapter 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Friends, do you want to see God? Look to Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Do you want a relationship with God? Follow Jesus. Do you say you love God? How do you love Jesus? He is the manifestation of the glory and the nature of God. So, Jesus is superior because of his inherent authority. But that authority is not just inherited, it is a natural authority because he is the eternal creator, superior in his creative power. He is also superior because of his radiant glory and his divine nature. He is the very manifestation of God himself. Now, moving on, fifthly, Jesus is superior because of his sovereign control. If all these other things are true, then here's what this means. He is superior because of his sovereign control. Look at the middle of verse 3. This superior Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we read, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just stop for a minute. Think about what that phrase just said. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Parents, you know how hard it is to uphold anything having to do with your children simply by a word, right? You tell them to go take a shower. You tell them to go get dressed. You tell them to clean their room. And it's like your words have zero power. We can't even fathom upholding a universe. And here that's exactly what Jesus does. Not only did he create all things, not only has he inherited all things, but he sovereignly sustains all things. Colossians 1.17, again, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the sustaining power of the universe, which means he is actively involved in his universe. He's not aloof and, and distant and unconcerned with what goes on in this world. He is actively involved, sustaining it, upholding it. And that phrase, uphold, upholding the universe, also carries with it the idea of moving it toward a goal. This isn't a static thing. This is movement. This is moving forward. And it means that nothing in this universe happens by accident. It is all part of the design of God toward a specific end. So he sustains the universe. He governs the universe. He directs everything in the universe. 
And without him, it would all cease to exist. But it means that he has a purpose for everything. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us what that purpose is, that we would be to the praise of his glory, that he would be glorified as is fitting for the eternal God of heaven and earth. Romans eleven thirty six, the apostle Paul cries out in this doxology, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ is the authority of the universe who is holding every aspect of this universe together, every moment of every day. And if he stopped, it would all fall apart. Now that sounds like a pretty daunting task, right? Some of you have a pretty busy schedule coming up in the next few weeks, and you're having a hard time figuring out how you're going to uphold it all. It sounds even more daunting to consider that every moment, every day, he is upholding the universe. But look at how he does it. Look at what the text says. He upholds it by the word, his power. The word of his power. This is not a hard task for him. By a simple word. Because it is the word of God himself. The same word that spoke creation into existence continues to uphold that creation all the way to its designed end. He has all powerful, all power and all authority. Nothing is too hard for this God. Nothing is outside the control of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now remember, we're not just talking about the physical world. We're talking about the times, the story of history, the details of your life, Friends, you may think that something you are experiencing right now is either too much for God to handle or too little for Him to care. Neither of those is true. He upholds the universe by the word of His power so nothing is too hard for Him. And He is intimately acquainted with all our ways and so nothing is too small for Him. He is in absolute control of every aspect and He is directing it to its appointed end. And that appointed end has to do with your good as well. That by faith in Him, you would have eternal life and see His new creation free from guilt and free from sin. And so in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul applies this truth to our salvation and to our spiritual growth. And he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, that's eternity past. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's eternity future. And every moment in between. It's upheld by his powerful word and led along according to his perfect will and purpose. You see that? This Lord Jesus Christ who is risen from the grave is sovereign in all things, not just in creation, not just in salvation, but also in the entire process of completing your redemption from point one to the very end. 
This is what we call the perseverance of the saints. He will uphold you to the day that you see his face. We are preserved by Christ because it is all his work from beginning to end. And with that kind of sovereign power, friends, do we not have every reason to be completely confident and at rest in the hands of our superior Savior? Do we not? He is risen from the grave. He is in charge of all things. He is good, and He is leading everything to its perfect end. We have every, every reason, every confidence in Him no matter what we face in this life. And that leads us now to a deeper focus on the saving work of Christ. In our next point, because points one through four are true, then point five is important, that he upholds all things. But point six is also important. Not only is he superior because of his inherent authority and creative power and his radiant glory and his divine nature and his sovereign control, but now also he is superior because of his redemptive sacrifice. His redemptive sacrifice. Look at the next phrase in verse 3. It says that he made purification for sins. Purification for sins. Why is that important? Because Scripture makes clear that all of us are sinners. We are by nature children of wrath, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Listen, it doesn't matter how good you are compared to the other human beings around you. It doesn't matter how much you have accomplished in this world. Before God, you are still a sinner. You have fallen short of His glory and you are separated from Him. You are stained by the worst possible stain, the stain of sin. So this idea of purification is a powerful truth, is it not? Through Christ, not only is the debt of sin paid, and not only do we have atonement and forgiveness from God, but also the stain of sin is removed. We're actually, in, in Christ, not brought back from the pit of sin to square one. We are actually brought into fellowship and righteousness before God. We are purified. And this is not merely referring just to our individual sins, although that is part of it, but it is referring to the curse of sin on the whole world. You know that just as Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and just as he has saved us from the penalty and the power of sin, one day he will save us from the very, the very presence of sin. And the curse of Genesis 3 is going to be reversed and undone. And so part of God's wonderful redemptive plan is to restore all things to its original intention, free from guilt, free from sin. And to accomplish that, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to take on himself the punishment for sin that we deserve but could never bear so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and purified and given eternal life and peace with God forever. Scripture teaches that this salvation is available in no other way and in no other place but in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
The apostles taught in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone is the Savior. Now that's an exclusive message, but it sounds restricting, doesn't it? It sounds limiting. But friends, that's not limiting. It's liberating. It really is. Why? Because this Jesus, who controls all things and upholds all things by the word of his power, has made salvation available to you. That tells us he's not only a sufficient Savior, but he's a willing Savior. Because he is God, he can save. Because he loves the world, he will save, and he will do what he has said. He will save and preserve those who call on his name for salvation and he will complete in every one of us what he has begun. That leads us to our final point described in the rest of verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Not only is Jesus superior because of his redemptive sacrifice and all these things that he has accomplished, but he is finally superior because of his exalted position. Everything culminates in this his exalted position. And everything about these phrases indicates to us that his saving work on the cross was a completed action, that it was finished, and it is never again to reoccur. Jesus was sent on a mission to be the redemptive sacrifice for sinners, and he accomplished that mission. There is no other redemptive mission necessary for there is no other way of salvation. There is no need for another way of salvation. Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. What this tells us is that not only did he lay down his life at his redemptive sacrifice, but he took it up again. That's the resurrection. And now he is exalted in heaven. He is the risen Savior who completed his mission by conquering sin and the grave through resurrection from the dead. And because of this, he is exalted as the sovereign Lord of heaven. Now, don't miss the significance of that phrase, he sat down. Why? Because the book of Hebrews presents Jesus as the great high priest. It's a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Guess what part? of all this, guess what the priests in their act of worship never did? They never sat down. Why? Because the sacrifices were never finished. Those sacrifices couldn't provide ultimate forgiveness for sin. They were never meant to. They didn't finish the job. They were temporary. They were pointing ahead to something greater. What were they pointing to? Christ, who laid down his life once for all, and then rose from the grave and ascended back to the Father, and now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Well, Jesus said it all on the cross when he said what? It is finished. Friends, you don't have to meet him halfway. He has come all the way to you. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is follow him. Now notice the superiority of where Christ is seated. At the right hand of the majesty on high. 
That's not as much a reference to a location as it is to a position. The right hand is the position of honor and power and authority. He is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven itself. He is exalted and glorified over all things. All other world leaders may be exalted to a limited degree, but Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and rules over the universe. He is eternal God. That's why we read in Philippians chapter 2 that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And it is at that name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Now, verse 4 adds another aspect to this picture of Jesus' exaltation. Look at what it says. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Why would the writer add that? What does that add to the discussion here? Well, some have, have written that it seemed at that time when this was written that the Jews believed the angels to be the next highest beings to God, and that even in their culture there had crept in this tendency toward angel worship. We understand that, right? We, we tend to worship all sorts of different things if we're not focused on Christ, and anything that seems supernatural tends to become an idol. Well, the same sort of thing is going on here. But this, show, this verse shows us that this Jesus, the man that they had seen and walked with on earth, who is now risen and exalted above, is exalted even above those angels. So what does this verse mean for us? It means that this is a call for us not to be preoccupied with the angels, but to be preoccupied with the one with whom the angels are preoccupied. That's a mouthful. Who do the angels in heaven worship? The risen lamb. That is where our focus is to be. So, in this short passage, these four verses with some straightforward statements of fact. In this, we have seen that Jesus Christ, because he is risen from the grave, is the superior Savior and the superior Lord because of his inherent authority, his creative power, his radiant glory, his divine nature, his sovereign control, his redemptive sacrifice, and his exalted position. He is the authority of all authorities. He is the power above every power. He is the glory and the nature of God himself. He controls everything at all times. He is the one and only sacrifice for sin that leads to salvation, and He is exalted to the highest position, the ultimate position of authority and glory in the universe. So how are we supposed to respond to that? Well, very simply put, your relationship with God depends on your relationship to what this passage says He is. So, who is Jesus? Your answer to that question is very important. And it must be consistent with the things that we have seen in this passage. Where do you stand with this Jesus? 
Now, there are several points of application that we need to consider from this passage. First of all, in response to the inherent authority of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus has authority over all creation, we must obey Him. You say, duh, right, but do we really obey Him the way we know we ought to? This means that we must know the Bible so that we can know what He has said. And as we learn what He has said, we must respond in obedience to His instructions. Have you set your heart to know and obey the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in His Word? Secondly, in response to the truth of His creative power, this Jesus must be the center of our world. If He created all things, then He is the focus of all things and He is the owner of all things, that means we belong to Him and we exist for Him. Whatever we do from day to day must be part of a life that is lived for His glory. Thirdly, in response to the truth of His radiant glory and divine nature, His glory and pleasure must be the main goal of our lives. We must not live for our own pursuits, our own glory but for His. Number four, in response to the truth of His sovereign control, we must rest in Him and trust in Him in every moment of our lives, whatever we face. He is incredibly good, and He is in complete control of all things. And we only do damage when we try to take matters into our own hands and walk by our own wisdom and strength. Trust Him. If this passage is true, and it is, then we have every reason to trust Him wholeheartedly. He cannot fail. Number five, in response to His redemptive sacrifice, we must repent of sin and call on His name for salvation. We have no hope without Him. Repent of sin call on His name for salvation, and then we live in gratitude for the superabundant grace and mercy that He has given to us. And then finally, in response to His exalted position, we must worship Him and submit to Him as our Lord. He has no equal. He will tolerate no rival. We must bow down before Him as Savior and Lord of all, Friends, there is no such thing as having Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. If you know Christ, you must yield your life to Him under His authority. You must submit to His sovereign Lordship in your life. And frankly, why wouldn't we? He's so good. He is risen, and He is coming again. He has gone to prepare a place for all who believe in Him. And He is coming again so that we will be with Him forever where He is. Let's pray.